Welcome to the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm your host, David Scubin. This is a podcast for all Catholics and people of goodwill who strive to live in the world, but not be of the world. First and foremost, we need to be disciples of Jesus ourselves. And then we go forth and make disciples of all nations, just as our Lord commanded. Through a series of timely topics and great guests, we will take that long and narrow journey to heaven together, encouraging each other in faith and virtue along the way. So let's get started. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Catholic Connect Podcast on another beautiful day that the Lord has made. Indeed, my friends, we are living in the world, but we are not of the world. The topic of residential schools and the role the Catholic Church played in the administration of these schools has been in the news in a big way over the past couple of weeks as we record this episode. Now, given that most media coverage comes from a very slanted and anti-Catholic narrative, I wanted to dedicate some time to examine the truth behind the church's efforts for truth and reconciliation, and also talk about some names from our church's past and examine who these figures really are. In recent weeks, we have seen the profoundly Marxist movement known as the cancel culture come for one of our own, Vital Justin Grandin. And in recent weeks, we have witnessed the city of Edmonton. They changed the name of their downtown LRT station. They used to have Grandin's name associated with it. Also, a mural of uh, Bishop Grandin as well was covered up. And a couple local Catholic school boards in Alberta unanimously voting to change the name of their schools named after Bishop Grandin in the name of his involvement with residential schools. But what do Catholics really know about this man and who was made the very first bishop of Alberta, of central Alberta, Uh, At the time, the diocese was known as the Diocese of St. Albert, which eventually became the Archdiocese of Edmonton. And he was also declared venerable by the Catholic Church back in 1966. So this is a very interesting man. What do we know about him? Sadly, many Catholics simply are ignorant to the heroic work and difficult life of sacrifice made by Bishop Vital Justin Grandin and in his life. So to help us tell the story of Bishop Grandin, it was a real honor to track down my old friend, Aaron Debeshera, and his wife, Christina, who have researched the life of Bishop Grandin and will share some of their findings with us. And I think you're going to learn a lot about Grandin and the truth that needs to be shared in today's world, especially amongst our fellow Catholics. So without further ado, here is Aaron and Christina. Enjoy. Aaron, Christina, it's a pleasure to catch up to you and a blessing. Thank you for taking the time for us. Yeah, for sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Outstanding. Thank you. So The Romantic Catholic is the name of the blog from WordPress. And uh, um, and Aaron, an interesting story from, from you and I. Way back in the day, I know I talk about sports a lot on the podcast and I do coach my son's baseball team, but uh, you were actually on my baseball team when you were a youth. So a pretty interesting connection. This is from a long time ago. But um, it's our connection to the small town of Clyde, Alberta, that I'm sure we'd uh, have most of our listeners would have to uh, to definitely get a map out to uh, try to find. So, uh, but Aaron, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe your background and your your journey of faith, and, and Christina as well. You're newlyweds. You've only been married for a couple of years, but as you probably could hear in the background, you guys have a baby, which is outstanding. So, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing right now in the church and. Uh, 
maybe how you met even. Yeah, well, uh, how we met actually has to do with what uh, we're doing in the church still at this point. I was uh, I was in the seminary at the time. I was there for four years at St. Joseph Seminary here in Edmonton. And uh, I, I was assigned to Camp St. Louis up near Bonneville uh, to go on team. And Christina was a team member there too. So we worked together over the summer. That's how we met. And uh, I proceeded to leave seminary the following year. So I did another year of seminary there and then left. And now I'm actually the director of Camp St. Louis. And well, Christina's no longer on team because we're married. So there's that. And with and with being a mom, there's some uh, some important duties to do as well. And Christina, are you from Alberta as well? You're you're a Wild Rose Country lady. I am. I grew up on a farm near Cold Lake, Alberta. Sure. A uh, yeah. little bit of a bigger center, probably more popular than Clyde. Um, but it's yeah, kind of I was from Lake for sure. For <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> Um, I was homeschooled K to 12. And then like Aaron said, I met, I met him when I was 18 at camp and we got to know each other really well and God just paved the way for the rest of it to happen. Yeah, as it should too. I mean, when you, when we get married, we get married once in our lives. So usually how you meet is a very unique experience and it's something that's, that's beautiful and, and worth sharing. So I'm glad that, uh, that you're together and, and you started your family. It's uh, outstanding. So Again, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, Aaron, this is your this is your blog that you have. It's called the Romantic Catholic. You've been doing it for not not too long, which is which is fine because I've only been doing the podcast for not even a year. So it's great to to find some um, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are doing the same thing, trying to get the word out, trying to spread our faith, share our faith with other people. And boy, do we need it right now! And in this particular uh, episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, one particular article that was on your blog. And the reason, Christina, you're uh, participating as well. It's great to have you, but you actually were a guest. I'm sure, I don't know, hopefully Aaron paid you well to uh, to make a guest appearance on the, the blog. But it had to do with, uh, with Archbishop uh, Justin Grandin. And of course, that's really um, news around residential schools, cancel culture. It's all coming to a head here right now, and it's really uh, at the forefront of uh, conversations here, not only in Canada, but also in the Catholic Church. So uh, maybe first, I'd like to know what got you interested in starting up a blog and, and spreading and sharing your faith in this way? Well, the blog basically started uh, after I left seminary, I wanted an outlet to still uh, contemplate theology and started writing these little articles. And I decided to use it as not just an outlet for my thoughts, but actually as an evangelizing tool. So started putting out some posts there about uh, basic truths of the faith, um, some more complex works, uh, defending teachings of the church. So my target audience, I think of my mother as the target to make theology accessible to uh, the average Catholic, to make it accessible to anyone who wants to know more about the faith, or who's interested in the faith and, and wants to know what the church teaches. Yeah, that's outstanding. And we're, we're really sorely lacking that right now. You know, I think as we, we see the way the culture is, the way our church is, um, the, um, uh, it, the, uh, the, the belief in the real presence of the Eucharist, for example, even amongst people that do show up for Mass on Sundays. And, uh, you know, this whole virus thing has been, I really think, a uh, 
it's been a, it's been a, this is a real struggle and, and it's been a, a, a tough time for the church. There's, um, we know that the attendance at mass before the virus wasn't that great to begin with. Now I think we're entering this, this time where, you know, if you're really serious about your faith, you're going to come back. If you weren't, you know, are you going to come back? A lot of people are going to be on the fence now. Like, okay, we have still got a dispensation as we're recording this. It's been in this way for over a year. And people are creature of habits. And we know that growing in holiness, going to Mass, living a sacramental life is a holy habit. But we know what happens with holy habits. It takes a long time to develop. When it comes to something that's a bad habit, it doesn't take very long. So if you're not coming to Mass, for example, you start to forget those things. And, and all of a sudden, those, those bad habits really really start to pick up so I'm, I'm really glad that that you're doing this and i'm glad that christina is also uh posting as well it's a it's a tag team and it's uh, great to see a, a family get involved in this way so i really want to focus on the blog itself specifically and uh, bishop grandin so we know that cancel culture has really come for so many people and it's funny how they come for people that are no longer around to defend themselves too right and it's it's not just bishop grandin who was the, the first bishop of Alberta before Alberta even became a province in Canada. That's how long ago it was. Uh, it was called the, uh, I guess, the Diocese of St. Albert at the time. Um, but maybe let's talk first about Bishop Grandin's life. How did he come to Canada? How did he arrive on the shores of Canada? And how did he end up getting to Alberta? Can you guys give us kind of a little snapshot of, of who he was even before he came to uh, North America? So Bishop Grandin was born in France. Um, as a child, he had a pretty pronounced lisp, a speech impediment, and he was frequently sick. So it didn't set him up very well to become a priest, but just like St. John Vianney, he managed to. Um, and shortly after his ordination, actually one of the, among the order um, of the Oblates, to volunteer to come to Canada. So he volunteered to come to Canada and work among basically the pioneer frontier part of, of Canada. So he arrived in Manitoba where they were organizing and sending priests out. So it meant that he was not going to be in a stable parish the way we imagine it at the present day. He was constantly traveling on foot, on horseback, on snowshoes to reach these people who were still unministered to. So that's kind of how he arrived in Canada and how he started off. And four years after he began that, that ministry in the West, he was picked as a bishop, essentially a candidate for becoming a bishop. Um, you may want to add to this part. He started as the coadjutor bishop. Coadjutor bishop of uh, St. Boniface Diocese. And sorry, guys, and he's a part of the Oblates already. He was in yes. the Oblate yeah. order when he was in France and then he came to Canada, right? Correct. Yeah, so he was ordained for the Oblate Order. Um, he had considered also the Jesuits, but the reason he decided with the Oblates was, he said, well, if I become a Jesuit, they might make me a professor instead of a missionary, and I want to be a missionary. So he joined the Oblates and uh, was ordained a priest for them and was sent immediately to Canada. And and my understanding, too, is that, you know, priests back in, the, in that time, in the 19th century, you know, if you're sending, hey, we're sending you to well, to Canada or, or overseas to the to the New World, they would probably would have called it then. It wasn't like there were a ton of people, uh, you know, trying to crack down the door to get to, on that ship to go across. Uh, if you're going to be a missionary and have that missionary zeal to go to a faraway land, you know, there was no there was no internet back then. Nobody was sending pictures back to send them, you know, show them what it looked like, right? So 
Um, there certainly had to be a missionary zeal already instilled in Archbishop Grandin or in Bishop Grandin before he even came to Canada. Yeah. Well, and he and his older brother, his older brother, Jean, was also a priest. And so they were arguing over who got to go to the missions. He gave basically all that he could to support Bishop Grandin's mission activity. So he basically lived an impoverished life uh, so that every penny that he could save and raise from benefactors he could send overseas. Another story I think that's lost on people is that a, a lot of uh, Catholics from Europe raised a lot of money and resources to send to build the church in Canada and the United States that sometimes, sometimes it, it gets overlooked all the time. You hardly ever hear anybody talk about that. You know, the portrayal of, of Bishop Grandin uh, in the media has been very negative. I think that part of, part of truth and reconciliation, it has to go both ways. So we may see, you know, the imperfections of someone, we may see the sins of someone, but there's also the, the good parts of someone, the positives. Do you think sometimes too, because we're talking about someone here that, um, you know, he, he lived so long ago and he died so long ago, he died 120 years ago, that sometimes people maybe um, just because they start to forget who these people are, well, something is named after, there's so many things that are named after Bishop Grand in, in Alberta, especially in St. Albert, the Edmonton area. People don't even know, you know, anything about him at all. Does that does that make sense? You think that there's kind of a correlation there between just just history and people forgetting about oh, who yes. these people are? Yeah. Yes, and I definitely think there's a lack of historical thinking and thinking in context of the past, particularly among enemies of the church. So people will frequently just think that Bishop Brandon was supposed to think about Indigenous people the exact way we think about them today, which isn't at all the case. He was, a, he was still a product of his time, as we would have been if we had lived then. But if we look at what he did in light of the current, like in the, in the circumstances he was placed in, I think he was doing the absolute best he could with the goal of serving God and neighbor. And maybe let's, let's talk a little bit about his life. So he so he does come into Canada. He, he has this zeal to serve the Lord, to, to bring the faith to others, to bring the gospel to, to all people in Canada at the time. I thought it was interesting. What was, and bishops have mottos, dioceses have mottos, some priests even probably have some personal mottos too. What was his motto that he undertook for his priestly life? So his motto was, Infirma mundi elegit Deus, which is Latin for, God has chosen the weak things of the world. It's a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it says something about how he viewed himself. He, he saw that he was a weak thing of the world. And he was probably wondering, how on earth is God going to use me to accomplish great things? But he saw that he even the smallest tool could be used as a mighty weapon in the hand of God. So the portrayal in the media is that the Bishop Grandin, he actually disliked or had a, a hatred even for Indigenous people. But the more I've researched Bishop Grandin, it seems like the actions in his life uh, amongst the Indigenous people suggest the, the exact opposite. So uh, what are some of the things that, you, that you've noticed or that you've researched um, that he did to, to benefit the lives of the Indigenous people in the North? Perhaps Aaron will want to share some very particular examples. He's just finished reading a biography of Bishop Grandin. Some of the things that um, stuck out stuck out to me in my research were that, like the journeys he took, and he was accompanied frequently by um, 
by Indigenous peoples who wanted to show him the land, who wanted him to understand their ways, their traditions, their cultures. He spent so much time immersed in, in these cultures and traditions of Canada's First Peoples that I think it would be pretty impossible for him to want to destroy that. Indigenous culture is inherently very spiritual. It points to one creator, one great spirit, Almighty God. And I think he recognized that they already had the one true God that they were worshiping. They just needed a bit more context and they needed the understanding of Jesus Christ who, who came to save us from our sins. So he saw their culture and I do not believe he wanted to destroy it and completely eradicate it. Um, I believe that he had a very deep understanding of who these people were and that he loved them. But maybe Aaron wants to share a few more particular points. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, he did see some things in certain cultures, because we can't say that all of the Indigenous peoples of Canada had the exact same culture. The various tribes had different ways of living. Um, there were some, for instance, when he, in his first few years as a missionary, he went to the far north. He made it all the way up to Fort Good Hope, which uh, for those who don't know their geography, that's where the Mackenzie River reaches the Arctic Circle. So it's almost at the Arctic Ocean. That was the furthest north he went. When he was all the way up there, the many different tribes that came to him, he saw a way of life that was not at all in line with the gospel. For instance, women were not seen as fully human. They weren't seen as having souls. Um, they had, the one tribe had only one word, meaning my daughter and my dog. Um, they would beat, scalp, or even kill their women for no reason whatsoever. Um, when they're old, were, were no longer able to stay caught up with the hunting parties. They just left them behind to starve to death. So... This is one of the first uh, things that he encountered in Canada. And so seeing that, he recognized there are things that are not, they're not acceptable, right? You can't live in this way while also accepting the gospel. So yes, he wanted to, to change their culture, change their way of life by bringing the gospel to them. So he gave his, his life to them. He would walk thousands and thousands of, of kilometers on his snowshoes, uh, he had frostbite on his nose and on his cheeks, on his ears, several times within the first winter that he was he was marching through there. Um, there's one story about him at uh, Greater Slave Lake. They had several missions around the shores of Greater Slave Lake, and in the winter time, the whole lake would be frozen over. So they would travel between these missions by walking on the ice lake and one time when he was walking across the lake there was a blizzard and so they lost sight of the mission they were coming to he had a couple of guides as well as a young uh, native boy who was basically his assistant and everything he called him his vicar general um, but they lost uh, connection with their guides they lost their guides in the blizzard and so even though they were an hour away walking distance from the mission they should have been able to see it they couldn't see anything they couldn't hear anything uh, and so they got lost on the ice in minus 40 minus 45 weather uh, so he and this little boy had to try to make a shelter 
in the dogs and the, the dog sled and their blankets, the little that they had with them. They had no food because they were so close to the mission. They did everything they could walking around in circles on the ice, trying to keep themselves from freezing to death. And the guides had made it to the mission and reported, yeah, they're still out there on the lake. So they set up porches, tried firing their guns, everything, tried to get their attention, but uh, no connection could be made because the blizzard was so, so, you know, the wind and the snow, they couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything. So the next morning, finally, Bishop Grandin saw land. And so they rushed to the land to start a fire. They were able to make a fire because there was wood there, trees. And at this point, a couple of men from the mission ran into them. They were 15 minutes from the priest's house um, when they found them. So they brought them into the, the mission. All of the priests at the mission assumed they were dead, frozen on the lake. So when Bishop Grandin walked into the mission church, one of the priests was there saying a requiem mass for the bishop. So needless to say, the, the priest was a little bit emotional and he had a very hard time making it through the rest of the mass. So That's incredible. So Aaron, where did you, was this part of a, a biography that you'd, that you'd read about? Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. I'd never, I'd never heard that story. It shows the faith of, of even the priesthood, then the priests that were yeah. uh, in those missions uh, instantly. He said, you know, there's probably a good chance that this is, you know, the Bishop Brandon has passed away. Um, uh, was he a bishop at the time when that happened, or was he? No, was he was still a priest. He was just okay, Father so, Grandin. So Father Grandin at the time that uh, he would immediately pray for his soul and uh, and for the the folks that were with him. That's outstanding. Uh, what other stories? Uh, that, you know, that seems like almost like heroic to me. You know, just staying with his people and being out in a in a crisis like that. But what other stories did you did you read that would be uh, worthy of sharing with people that didn't know this man? One that I enjoyed was the. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, there was one where he was staying. He was a bishop at this time. He was staying at one of the northern missions. Uh, I believe it was also on Greater Slave Lake in the dead of winter with uh, Father Gruard at the time. He later became Bishop Gruard and uh, one of the lay brothers. And so they were staying in this, this, this terribly built wooden shack. They had to sleep on the, the wooden planks up in the attic, which were not nailed down because they had no nails. They were so impoverished up there so quite often when they would be climbing up their their ladder made out of bits of rope that they managed to scrounge together up to the attic crawl across these these planks to their beds quite often their legs or their arms would go through the floor and they would they would have a gay old time laughing at each other and all this uh, they had two cows there so they did have the luxury of having butter and they even had bread uh, this is from his, his uh, diaries. He wrote, we even had bread, but we didn't have any flour to make the bread. They used like powdered fish to make the bread. So he said it didn't taste very good, but you know, it was better than anything else we had. So, so just the number of trials that, that these men endured trying to bring the gospel to, to people they've never met. They've left their families behind in Europe. They're here on their own. And they're having to eat bread that's made from powdered fish while sleeping in an attic with boards that aren't nailed down. Like the amount of, of heroic acts that they contributed to, to civilizing and building Western Canada, it's really amazing to me. And then when you look at what cancel culture is trying to do to them, it's even more horrifying. I think it's a good time to bring this up right now. Uh, 
as we mentioned before too, there's you know there's mottos that bishops uh, uh, take on for themselves. There's uh, mottos or um, a coat of arms, a symbol that you know even the pope has, cardinals, dioceses. The Archdiocese of Edmonton has a coat of arms, like every archdiocese around the world has. And this is something I just found out myself here just in the last couple of weeks. But uh, maybe I'll let you guys tell us the significance of the snowshoes on the coat of arms. Yeah, so the snowshoes come from Bishop Grandin himself because they had to walk on snowshoes everywhere in the wintertime. And uh, he has a joke in his diaries. I mean, I, I can read it as a joke anyways, but he talks about this one time when he had incredibly sore feet and rheumatism was setting in and all that. And he was trying to walk on the snow. And he said, you know, in the summertime, I could use a walking stick, but you can't use that in the wintertime. Otherwise I would need a third snowshoe. And well, I couldn't spare another snowshoe. <laughs> Incredible. And, and you know, this is, and this is not a, a number that I'm, I'm making up or we're making up. This is right from the Di Archdiocese of Edmonton website. We talk about heroic virtue from saints and we look throughout history and we see heroic virtue. I talk about St. Charles Borromeo a lot on this podcast. Uh, just because I, I've, I've always known who he was, just like a lot of us Catholics, we kind of hear about saints, but we, it's just kind of funny. Sometimes we just feel like they've selected us for some reason. In the last year, I've seen uh, the life of St. Charles Borromeo through the, the midst of this pandemic and how his heroic response to a pandemic in Milan, um, you know, that's what well, a lot of people remember him for, but he had just such an incredible uh, life of virtue feeding 60,000 people a day in Milan right in the middle of a plague while still saying daily mass. He was just a man of extraordinary virtue. Bishop Grandin and the, the, the snowshoes, people need to realize that this man didn't walk 250 miles in snowshoes. He didn't even walk 2,500 miles in snowshoes, but the number that's been given, and to me is factual, I'll accept what the Archdiocese of Edmonton Post is 25,000 miles not in a car, not in a Hummer, not even by dog sled, even though he probably traveled by dog sled if, if he had a chance, but by snowshoe. Um, how many people can we safely say amongst anybody in our rank and file, Catholics and even in leadership that would um, walk that many miles for the salvation of souls and yet only a hundred and some years later be canceled without much um, pushback. We hear the word colonization often, all the time, you know, from, from secular media, from non-Catholics, uh, not necessarily people of goodwill, because people of goodwill, there's a lot of people of goodwill who are supporting the Catholic Church right now, Catholics, and it's so great to see that support from people. But the word colonization, just out of the sheer ignorance and arrogance of this world, are they confusing that with the Catholic Church's mission of evangelization? I think frequently they are, um, and even in certain Protestant circles, I've heard it said, um, like they conflate the, the doctrine of discovery, where if you find a land, it's yours and you should be preaching the gospels in it, with organization and, and putting in, um, government and settlers in place as a political thing. So I think the two frequently are mixed. The, the Catholic Church's mission, and I, it's, it's so plain and obvious for, for people to see this. The Catholic Church does not hide this. The main 
goal of Catholicism, the main purpose of the church itself is to evangelize and to save people's souls. Yeah. It's not something we hide. This is something that we do all the time. Aaron and Christina, do you have, if you kind of research this maybe a little bit, but even just your reflections on the church in general back in the 19th century, that was a real big part of the Catholic church was to evangelize the new world, new territories, bringing the gospel to places that had never heard the gospel before. And that was a real focus of, of priests and nuns of the time. Do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, Bishop Grandin, he had a great concern for the indigenous peoples in the context of colonization. He was, uh, he was concerned by the traders that would come in in the early years before the signing of the treaties, for instance, the Hudson Bay Company were about the only Europeans there, in addition to the Catholic priests who were missionizing and, and some nuns that started to come in, the gray nuns. And he, Bishop Grandin recognized that the liquor that the Hudson's Bay Company traders were bringing in was endangering the souls of the First Nations people as well as the bad example of these traders who claimed to be Christians. So he had that great concern for uh, for the natives, for their souls specifically. Later when the treaties were signed and lo a lot more colonists, settlers were coming in, he was concerned by the way that the, the indigenous peoples were being put on, on treaties or, or on uh, reserves, pardon me. Um, and they were being taken off their own land, off of their own territory. They were losing access to their food sources, the buffalo, the beavers, who were being mass hunted, being uh, removed from the from the earth. And then they were losing access to Catholic schools and Catholic churches, more pro-Protestant and anti-Catholic than they would care to admit. Um, they were hiring only Protestant Indian agents and only allowing Protestant schools to be built on reserves. So Bishop Grandin had to go to Ottawa several times and argue with the government to say, let us minister to these First Nations people because they're, you're not allowing them to have life to the fullest, right? Whether we look at that in a, in a secular lens or in a, their physical life was being diminished. Some of these missionaries who had worked with uh, the Blackfoot people in Southern Alberta for decades when all of these new settlers were coming in in the 1870s and the 1880s, they started to see these once strong, vigorous Indian men coming back to the mission completely emaciated. They had they could see their bones uh, through their through their flesh. All of their muscle was gone. Right? They were starving because the uh, new settlers were depleting the land. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's uh, fascinating. Um, when we talk about bringing the gospel to to the indigenous people, um, what were the the steps that that not only did, did uh, Father Grandin at the time then became Bishop Grandin, but other priests from the Oblates uh, bringing scripture, the gospel itself, the Bible, the Holy Word of God? What were some of the efforts that they had done to to um, to translate the Bible from? Probably they probably had French. Bibles, I'm guessing, is when they, they brought it, but to to try to translate and to try to help the, the Indigenous people understand in their languages. What what kind of efforts were they making at that time? So this one was interesting to learn about. It seemed to be a really big team effort on the part of missionary priests. 
um, home, for example, worker with Bishop Brandon, uh, translated, I believe it was the New Testament into Cree, and he wrote a dictionary of Cree syllabics. Uh, it was mentioned in Bishop Grandin's diary a, a few times that he said mass and he would preach in Cree. So language outreach was, it was massive. And again, they didn't have Google Translate or something at the time. They were doing this all on their own. So it's amazing to think about the amount of time they must have spent just going fishing with the Indigenous people or trapping or gardening, things like that, the amount of, of time they spent together as brothers within that community in order to more effectively minister to them and to preach the Gospels. And then when it came to more, more formal education in the faith, they would, they would be frequently saying Mass there and, and catechizing those who were interested in being instructed in the faith. And as well, with the, the freight train of European progress coming down the line, Bishop Grandin could see that children would also need that formation in order to be, you know, civilized in a sense and taught about European ways in order to relate to the coming changes. Um, he saw that there would be dreadful consequences, like Aaron was mentioning, starvation was setting in in a lot of places. And, and this is right in the, in the Truth and Reconciliation Parents were saying to Bishop Grandin, please take our children and educate them so that they know the white man's ways and they can survive in this changing world. This is nothing we've ever experienced before. So he started setting up these small day schools where the children would leave after, you know, four or five years of education and they would be able to, to garden, they could do housework, they could, you know, use the tools and the, the methods that, that white settlers we're bringing with them. Yeah, th these are certainly factual that, that this has been documented, but conveniently skipped over by some. Um, the condition, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but certainly not in all communities, but a lot of Indigenous communities back in the time, um, if someone like Father Grandin and, and other priests or, or anybody would show up at some of these communities, they would see that there were some very serious social issues there already that, that were existing. The point of, of the Catholic Church is they the church never leaves us where we're at. So, you know, if they go in and they see something, and, and I think we can all agree that if there's, um, you know, some questions around, like we talked about what happens to, to some of the older people in the community, that was a, a, a form of euthanasia, the way women were treated. And, you know, there were other things happening in the community that were that were wrong and immoral. So when a Catholic comes and sees that, you know, we're not talking about, hey, we're going to change the culture and, and, and change these people. We're going to change and show them the, the correct behavior, the, the way that, that Jesus wants us to be, that we're children of God. Um, so, yeah, that, that's those are those are great stories. Was Cree the kind of the predominant language of the time amongst the indigenous people? Uh, in central Alberta, yes. And, and into Saskatchewan. Uh, when Bishop Grandin arrived in Winnipeg at St. Boniface Mission, when he first came to Canada, he had to spend a few months, I, I say a few months, not a long time, to learn uh, Cree, Blackfoot, and Montagnier. So those were the three main languages spoken. Uh, Montagnier was broad all over northern Canada, uh, Cree across central to northern Alberta and Saskatchewan, and then Blackfoot in southern Alberta. Is it safe to say that Father Grannon was fluent in all those languages? Um, not totally fluent, at least in Cree. 
he brought Father Lacombe or Father Le Duc, I forget which one, when uh, there, was an, there was an epidemic of smallpox and he brought one of them with him who was more fluent in Cree so that they could minister to the, the people who were suffering there. So this this may not have been Father Granin himself, but it was certainly one of his priests from the Oblates that, that did this. But was the Bible ever translated into Cree? From uh, it would have been the French language, or were were there portions that were were translated at the time? So the New Testament, from what I understand, was translated by Father Lacombe into Cree, um, and I think it's it's likely that that during the Mass, um, because the readings then would have been all in Latin, I think it's very likely that they would have translated those. Uh, from time to time, just for the edification of the people. And so they could understand what the readings were and have context for the homily that came after. Again, I can't, I don't know, I can't guarantee that that was an every Sunday type of thing or an every mass kind of thing. Um, but you can see from the evidence we do have that they're, they were making great efforts to preach to the people in their own language. And they were constantly edifying themselves in their, their understanding of that language and you know, how to convey theological concepts in a language that they've they've just learned. That, that's a great point, Christina. A, a lot of people forget that Latin was and still is the universal language of the Catholic Church. Yeah, it is. Right. So um, so actually it, it was a gift in itself to teach anybody Latin, to pray in Latin. Uh, it, it's a beautiful language. It's a it's a it's a pure language. Uh, I remember somebody saying that, you know, there's no there's no curse words. In Latin, there's no swear words because it's such a clean language, and uh, so that in itself was a gift. Yeah, and I had forgotten myself, so I'm glad that uh, Christina and Eric, you were pointing me back in the right direction. Yes, at the time, in the 19th century, mass was uh, the liturgy was celebrated in in Latin. Uh, everything I know, residential schools is is a controversial topic, and I think that we can all agree as Catholics, if we have done something that is immoral that is offensive to God and, and takes us outside of living in a state of grace that we need to confess that if we've done something immoral, illegal, you know, these are things that, these are crimes that we have to pay not only, not only Caesar and the government and, and the people, but also to God too. And, and um, so, but I, I don't really know a lot about what happened. I think that there's a lot of stories in the news about residential schools that I don't believe are true. I don't believe that both sides of the story are being told. And I think that a lot of our listeners that are that are tuning in are going to be are very grateful for this. I know I'm very grateful for what you're sharing with me, because you've taken some time to actually go and research who Bishop Grandin really was. But Bishop uh, Justin Grandin is not just known as Bishop Justin Vital Grandin; he is known as Venerable Grandin. A very bold and very strong proclamation. The Church is saying that he is in heaven right now. So this is this is something that it's worth us fighting for the church uh, and guided by the Holy Spirit has made a declaration to the world. And I think this is where things get um, interesting. And this is the time that we need to to stand up and to to tell the truth about someone that I, I believe is, is being unjustly accused in our secular world. And uh, as Catholics, we're as a team, we're not doing enough to defend the good works of someone. Yeah, we're all sinners and even saints. Look at Let's think about St. Augustine too. You know, he had a child out of wedlock. You know, that, that, was a, that was a serious issue in his time. That was like, he was a Catholic. And, you know, St. Augustine, a great, one of the greatest preachers and debaters of his time, 
find out you're a Catholic and they say, you have a son that you, with a woman you weren't married to? Like, what is going on here? But he's one of the greatest saints in the church, right? Let's talk about the, the one quote that is attributed to Bishop Granite, probably the only piece of ammo that I've seen um, uh, some people, non-Catholics, the media use and uh, take that as, um, I guess, the mode of transport to cancel Bishop Grandin. Uh, this is what it is, uh, in case you haven't read. We instill a profound distaste for the native life and they should feel humiliated when reminded of their origin. When they graduate from our institutions, the children have lost everything native except their blood. First of all, I guess, did Bishop Grandin actually say this? And uh, if he did, what was the, the context of, uh, of why he said it or how he said it? So he did, it took us a long time to track down this quote. Um, we were both literally searching for hours online, combing through pages and pages where the quote was used but never cited. And then I also, um, an acquaintance had sent um, some references to me and said, oh, well, it's in this academic article, it's listed in this book. But again, those gave us no leads, It they were dead ends. So finally, another acquaintance went to the provincial archives and had tracked down the letter in which it was contained. Um, and then Aaron had sent it to a close friend who was able to translate it and maybe you want to provide some of the background information yeah so the context of the the letter it's a letter to colonel mcleod who was the magistrate or the the governor at the time for the northwest um it's a letter petitioning for more support for their schools which he had three schools at the time one in lac la biche one in uh, Ile la crosse and then uh one at st albert so he said to Colonel McLeod, you've seen these schools, you've seen what great work we're doing. You know, we're teaching these these kids to be able to to be able to take care of themselves, uh, you know, provide their own food without having to rely on the buffalo or the or the hunt. Right. And he said uh, the civilizing that is taking place in Canada is killing the natives. And he said our way of civilizing in these schools makes the native disappear, but it doesn't kill them. So they're actually able to survive. And it's in that immediate context that this quote then is is brought out that, yeah, they're, they've lost that way of life. They've even lost the language so that that way of life is no longer possible for them. And yeah, they're kind of embarrassed that they're that they came from that kind of way of life but now they're able to live as part of the mainstream society. They don't have to worry about dying. They don't have to be worry about being shoved off onto a reserve. And, and he does make the point, you know, they wouldn't fit in very well in, in France, say, but they can stand shoulder to shoulder with any settler in Western Canada. So I think part of the context for the quote that's being missed is again, that historical thinking. Bishop Grandin isn't writing to a religious superior, say, um, he's writing to essentially a politician and he's trying to show this, this middle ground where it's like, you don't have to completely ignore the indigenous people and you don't have to, you know, kill them all. There is this middle way where you can educate them. You can help them to, to form their own Canadian culture, essentially. Um, 
without without destroying their lives. Um, so remembering that that context that he's talking to a politician. The other thing that I think we're missing is uh, is when he talks about, for example, the natives being ashamed of their origin. There's a heavy emphasis in our culture that you should never feel shame. But for Christians, shame is kind of a part of us when we recognize our sinfulness, when we recognize what we have done or what we have failed to do. We ought to feel some sort of shame. That's part of being human. But culture now is so heavily emphasizing that you should never feel ashamed of, of being who you are, so to speak. Um, you should never feel ashamed of, of your sins, of your, your wrongdoings, of your, you know, of your swearing, for example, your divorce, your sexual orientation. You should never feel shame about any of and we as Christians I think need to reclaim that a little bit and say no look we do need to admit that we are imperfect we're made in the image and likeness of God we are his children and yet there are still things that we have done wrong in our past shame is not entirely bad but we do need to know how to move past that and again I think Bishop Grandin was setting up the indigenous children he educated to have that sort of life where they move past the, the feelings of shame, and they accept a new identity, a, a new identity in Christ and in this newly formed culture that he was hoping. Yeah, when you have no, no, sh yeah, no shame. No, that, isn't that ultimately that that's what that's what pride is. And, uh, you know, when I, I think of and I think it, you may have mentioned this, Aaron, on one of your uh, recent blogs, too, about uh, I, I, I just love that June is the, the month of the sacred heart of Jesus, you know, what a what a way to to um, uh, counter the culture with with something that's uh, so holy and so good, and uh, the first word that that comes to to my mind when I think of the most sacred heart of Jesus is humility, which is the opposite of pride. And uh, to become new persons in Jesus Christ, I think that's what the church calls us to, and I think that's what uh, Bishop Grandin was doing and what the Oblates were doing. Um, and um, again, I. I always I, I don't want people to, to say that you know I'm a supporter of residential schools the way that the media portrays residential schools to be you know if there was things that were done that were that were evil then we need to call them out we call it the center that's what Catholics do right but I think we've we've heard one side so much that I think now we need to sort of have that that balance they like said truth and reconciliation is a two-way street and we need to hear the, the good things and the positive things and we need to hear the truth of how it really was and not just a, a narrative in recent uh, I've seen numbers in the last 10 years that indigenous people that they identify depending on the on the area but if you go across Canada the north that between 30 and 40 percent of indigenous people identify as Roman Catholic um, a number that you will not hear or see uh, anywhere in, in, a, in a secular media or amongst uh, others uh, that uh, that really oppose the church. Does this us talking about Bishop Grandin getting canceled, buildings, you know, wiping his name off, changing the names of streets, changing the name of LRT stations in Edmonton? Does it even matter? Did Bishop Grandin not win the souls for Jesus that he needed to already? Christ has already won the won the fight in the end, but uh, I think the battle has to keep being fought. There's we are fighting against a very strong media 
who of course is totally in league with the government too. So the church does need to keep uh, standing up and fighting for our heritage, right? We don't want to lose that 30 to 40% of First Nations people who identify as Catholic. If we let the same narrative keep being told that cancels Bishop Grandin, it's going to keep dropping. Same with non-Indigenous Catholics, right? Because Catholics as a whole in Alberta, certainly, and across Canada, don't know the history of the church in Canada, right? We don't know the, the lives of our saints like Bishop Grandin. What are some additional things that we can do for our young people, especially those that go to Catholic schools to uh, ensure that they know that there's there's a Catholic side of the story and not just a, a narrative, a secular narrative that tells the stories about residential schools? Because we know that those stories are being told in Catholic schools and they're actually not coming from a Catholic perspective. Yeah, um, definitely. I think, um, so part of it would be like, <sighs> making sure that that young people are educated about the real history and taught to think from that historical that historical perspective um, so that they can say what else was happening in the world at the time and why did this man make the decisions that he made what were some of the what were some of the pressures that were on him how did he perceive the issue so if, i think a big part of this teaching our young people to think that way um, if we can engage with the culture through a method of critical thinking, I think we've got a, a pretty good angle on them. Um, I, I honestly think that's the basis for it. Christina, critical thinking, that's that's a yeah. large ask in today's world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people forget, you know, that the Catholic Church is in Indigenous communities where other faith communities have been long gone but the indigenous people continue to journey with the Catholic church. They continue to have faith in large numbers. We see that locally in Alberta and some people in Canada know, but maybe our listeners outside of the country don't know is that we have a large pilgrimage uh, dedicated to uh, St. Anne, the mother of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, at a lake named after St. Anne called Lac St. Anne, where literally tens of thousands of indigenous and native peoples from Canada come all across Canada, sometimes even by uh, I think on horses they come. Uh, it's incredible journeys that they make from from far far away, and it is truly a pilgrimage. It's not a it's not a vacation coming out to, to camp and hang out at the lake. This is actually a pilgrimage. So the Catholic faith does run deep in in our indigenous people in in Canada, and I, I just I love that. I've I've seen it with my own eyes. It's so beautiful. Um, maybe Aaron and Christina, maybe we can close on that. Um, how can we? get together as because we're we're not indigenous people we're not you know slavic catholics indigenous Catholic, you know we're we're all one family in, in jesus christ so how can we get together as a as a whole catholic community and spread that this news of, of peace and love is amongst uh our membership and we can acknowledge some things that maybe we didn't do right maybe some of the evils of the past but still forge forward living a sacramental life and spreading that to the rest of the world Aaron can take this away. He wrote a whole blog post on it recently. Yeah, on uh, on reconciliation. You know, the Catholic Church is a long, long-standing theology of reconciliation. That's kind of the purpose of the Church to reconcile humanity with God. Um, so there are four essential things in the sacrament of reconciliation, and I would say in any form of reconciliation, there has to be 
contrition, right? We have to actually be sorry. So there is that admission of what we've done wrong. There has to be the act of confessing it. We have to go to the people who are hurt and say, I'm sorry, which it has been done on a, a in a public apology, but there needs to be, I think, the personal listening to the individual because it's not just a group reconciliation. It is a personal reconciliation that needs to take place. And that's what's lacking is the personal element. So there does have to be one-on-one -on -one sitting down and listening to the person who is hurt and hearing the what the wound is and actually having contrition and confessing exactly what it is that hurt that person. So if someone was abused in a residential school, the person acting on the church does need to listen to that story and does have to apologize specifically for what abuse was experienced in that residential school. It can't just be a blanket apology. Then there also has to be the penance that is done. That's the third essential element. You have to do something to make up for it. That continued journeying, that continued walking with the person who was hurt, whether that takes the form of of a fine in the judicial system or a prison sentence, right? Those are acts of penance that are done to make up for the harm, right? It could be a matter of providing counseling or, or spiritual direction for those who have been hurt. Um, but then the fourth essential element is the act of forgiveness or absolution on the part of the person in our relationship with God that's bestowed by the priest on behalf of God and the church. That's who we've harmed in our sins. In this case, it's those persons in the residential schools who have been harmed. And they do need to be able to forgive and let go of, of the wound, right? You do need to, do, to treat the wound, acknowledge it and treat it if you want it to heal. So providing means of allowing that healing and that forgiveness to take place I continued walking with them, hearing their stories and making those active uh, signs of contrition and doing penance, I think are, are necessary requisites for moving forward. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. Absolutely. And, and uh, that goes for, for all that were, were hurt by any kind of system that, that was, uh, um, you know, prejudiced against indigenous people. If, the, if there's individuals that are hurt, we need to address that for sure. And uh, and make sure that there's there's peace between, uh, you know, the church and the people, and and, and of course with with God, and uh, so let's keep praying for that that reconciliation, and uh, you know I think that um, uh, that part of that is is making sure that that Catholics do know, and the world as best we can. I mean, some people are just never going to listen, but to hear both sides of the story, to hear that there there are good things, there were good people that were trying to do some very good work for the Lord. And um, that that fell short in their vocation. I think as we all fall short in our vocation too. Sometimes even as as married people and as as uh, sons and daughters of the church. Uh, but before we go, Aaron and Christina, can you um, maybe tell us a little bit about how people can follow your work and and some of the work that you're doing uh, with your blog at WordPress? Yeah, so you can follow us on on the blog. It's at theromanticcatholic.wordpress.com or on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called The Romantic Catholic. I think it's pretty easy to find. Uh, you can like or follow on that one, subscribe and like on the on the blog itself, or sign up for uh, email notifications. So 
outstanding. No, thanks again for for your time. But I know you're you're. I got a young family and a, and a little baby, and I know that uh, I've invaded your time. <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, patiently uh, dealing with me and, and and joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Aaron and Christina. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Well, I quite enjoyed that conversation with Aaron and Christina. And a reminder to go to their blog. It's called The Romantic Catholic. It's at WordPress. And uh, you can find them on Facebook as well. Always good to hear these voices, especially from young Catholics in Canada. And it was such an inspiration to hear the findings and the truth of who Bishop Grandin really was. And I really thank Aaron and Christina for doing that for us and passing along those observations and insights to us as well. You know what, my friends, the true enemy of the church is Marxism, atheism, secularism. It's the the wisdom of this world is against us. And that wisdom is pitting the First Nations people against the Catholic Church and vice versa. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to split us up, but it's not going to work. You know why? Because the First Nations people, there are tens of thousands of these beautiful souls that belong to our Catholic Church. And they are loved, beloved by us, and they are needed in our church and uh, we're one, one family. We are one beautiful family, the body of Jesus Christ. And we're getting together and we're going to fight the forces of evil, the forces that fight against freedom, not only for Catholics, but also for the entire world. So I just want to say that these church burnings are appalling, despicable, and they're a desecration. Any twisted ideology of this world, take a look in the history books, folks. The Catholic Church builds our basilicas, cathedrals, and plants the cross of Jesus Christ on the ruins of your ideology. We're coming for you. In charity, we're coming for you. In truth, we're coming for you. And we're bringing somebody a whole lot bigger than you could ever imagine. And that is the truth and the love that is found in Jesus Christ. His passion, his death, his resurrection will heal this world. And Catholics, we've got a mission all of us. It's so exciting right now. We've got a mission to bring this to the world and we're going to make history. And I can't wait to be a part of it. We've got a chapter to write, my friends. So stay in a state of grace. It's an exciting time. Not one for us to be afraid. As Padre Pio beautifully said, pray, hope, and don't worry. Worry is useless. God is merciful and will hear your prayer. And indeed, Venerable Bishop Vitel Justin Grandin, pray for us. We need it here in Alberta. We need it here in Canada. So if we want to transform the world, my friends, my Catholics, my brother and sister Catholics, we've got a lot of work to do. But you know how we can start? We can start by praying every day. We can start by receiving the Eucharist worthily and in a state of grace. And we know how we can live in a state of grace. We've got to go to confession often, at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin. Don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.